welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, if you would stand for our scripture reading, I know you were just up, but I want to read this one more time from Mark chapter 16, and then we will jump in. Verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, it is good to be here together. It is good to reconvene, to worship God together, to reflect on these incredible truths of Easter, to say to one another that he is risen and he is risen indeed, to proclaim good news in the midst of the darkness. And so thank you for joining us here today. Mark is the Cliff Notes gospel. Gets right to the point. He omits all kinds of detail. He leaves stories unfinished throughout his gospel. He leaves questions unanswered. And so his version of the resurrection is predictably short. And smart people who study these things generally believe that Mark's gospel, when he originally penned it, ended at verse 8. And some years later, someone who didn't like the abrupt ending decided that there needed to be more, so they added verses 9, I think it goes through 20, in order to tidy it up and make it nicer. But most of the people who dig into this kind of thing would say it ends, really, originally, at verse 8. And I absolutely love Mark's unfinished account of the resurrection. When he closes his laptop, we might say there are a lot of undotted I's and uncrossed T's. Every question is not answered. Every tension is not resolved. The next step is clear, but the second step isn't clear at all. And yet one thing is crystal clear to Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. This man, Jesus, who was executed on a Roman cross two days earlier, is not in his grave on Sunday morning. His tomb was open and empty, and there was no sign of his body. These three women went to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning, essentially, to embalm him. And on the way, they discussed the obvious problem of how in the world they were going to move what was somewhere near a two-ton stone over the entrance. But when they got there, we're told the stone had already moved. They walked in to find what Mark calls a young man dressed in a white robe. Just get in that for a minute. You're walking up on a tomb, it's open, you walk in, and there's a dude in there. That had to be kind of creepy, to put it mildly. 
Turns out this guy was an angel, and the women, as we can imagine, were understandably freaked out. The angel said to them, essentially, calm down. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here because he's risen from the dead. Now go tell his disciples and make sure you tell Peter that Jesus will meet you all in Galilee, and there you will see him again just like he told you. And then just as this story is getting juicy and starting to build up momentum, Mark slams on the brakes and it comes to an end. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, Mark says. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I mean, think about this. Close the curtain, end the story, trembling and bewildered, they walk away and they say nothing to nobody. You've got to be kidding me. Where's the resurrection party? Where's the Easter brunch? The joyous reunion between Jesus and his friends. Actually, the last word of Mark's gospel in the Greek is the preposition for, F-O-R. I mean, seriously, you can't end a sentence with a preposition. Much less a whole book. Much less a book in the Bible. Much less one of the gospels. And one of the reasons Mark's resurrection account is the least read on Easter Sunday is because it lacks the punch and the pizzazz of the other Gospels. It ends in midair. And I think Mark's Gospel, at the same time, is perfect for Easter because it reminds us that the end is really just the beginning. It's not read that much. There's more juicier versions in Luke and John and Matthew, but I think it's the perfect one for Easter because it reminds us that the end for us is just the beginning. Something incomprehensibly powerful and new has occurred that changes everything from then on, but no one had a clue how or what it all meant. So now the real adventure begins. One unfamiliar, shaky step at a time. Mark's unsatisfying ending vividly shows us that the resurrection is not merely or mostly an idea or a belief or a concept for us to think about. It is a demonstration of God's supremacy over every other force in this universe. So the universe changed when Jesus walked out of his tomb. A new world actually began that Sunday in the first century, and it continues on this Sunday in the 21st century and will continue forever. So the resurrection is not an idea or a belief or a concept to think about, but a reality for us to experience right now in the specifics of our lives and relationships and circumstances, no matter how good or bad or easy or hard they may be. Now, in a few minutes, this gathering is going to come to an end, and it will be brunch or lunch or barbecue or a nap or, hopefully, all of the above. Resurrection warrants a big party. But soon enough, this will be over, and it will be Monday morning. I hope you leave here today not convinced the resurrection happened. If that is a barrier, and it very well may be, because the claim of rising from the dead is either astounding or absurd, but that's a big issue, and we aren't going to resolve that one today. So I hope you leave here today convinced that if the resurrection occurred, the universe did indeed change 
forever. And your life and my life right now, today, and forevermore can be new and can be different and can be better in all sorts of incredible ways. But I want to highlight three of them today. And the first has to do with this whole idea of reconciliation. Fascinating word. Powerful concept. This idea of reconciliation. Things that are apart being brought back together. The angel said, go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And those two words, and Peter, have resonated with broken human beings for 2,000 years because they speak so deeply to the common human experience of screwing up. Morally messing up. Relationally hurting each other. And Peter speaks to the common human experience that something is off. Something is broken. Something is wrong within us. And this wrongness, this sinfulness, we might say, within, in a million ways, comes out of us and damages us and harms those around us and fractures relationships. It separates us from God. It separates us from others. And Peter speaks then to the very real condemnation and burden we sometimes carry in our bodies and in our beings. Peter, as you may know, turned on Jesus at the crucial moment, and he did so to save his own neck. So there was a fracture in their friendship. And almost instantly, a fog of shame engulfed Peter. The Bible is pretty explicit on this, that the moment Peter screwed up, instantly a fog of shame engulfed him. Engulfed him, And who among us sitting here today has not been engulfed by a fog of shame brought on by a moral failure or by the breaking of relational trust or by the weight of some sin or by just this haunting sense of condemnation and not being enough and not being a good, good enough for whatever reason. So imagine the hope rising in Peter when the women said, Jesus specifically said to make sure you come to Galilee. I mean, just think of the pile of junk starting to clear out in Peter's mind and heart when he heard those life-giving words. All of a sudden, the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation And all that inner junk starting to be swept away. And you know, and I know, that inner junk, whatever you want to call it, is real. And these two words are part of why the Christian message is called good news. And Peter. And Mike. And you. The resurrection unleashes reconciling power that makes a way for us to reconnect with God, to be at peace with ourselves, and to restore broken relationships, the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation with God and others. One way the resurrection affects things. A second way life can be new and different and better is caught up in this word astonishment. 
The resurrection awakens astonishment. It evokes a degree of astonishment. I would even say that the resurrection warrants our astonishment. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. He is risen. He is not here. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So I said a minute ago, the story concludes with the women fleeing the tomb in fear. And Mark says they said nothing to anyone. How weird is that? Now, obviously, they eventually spoke up, but they were stunned by what they saw and by what they heard. They didn't need a science degree to tell them that people don't typically rise from the dead. I mean, resurrection wasn't like a common thing in the first century. And Jesus' empty grave was just too much for them to handle. The math didn't work. The logic didn't work. They had nowhere to put this. And I love Mark's phrase, trembling and bewildered. Bewildered is a goofy word. I mean, we don't use the word bewildered enough. At least I don't. I don't hear too many people walking around. You know, I'm bewildered by that. It's just not a common word that we use. Ecstatic is the actual word Mark uses. And in this context, it means a state of intense amazement to the point of being beside oneself with astonishment. What a great picture. We're going to hang out this afternoon with our now 28-year-old son, Sam. I'll never forget the day he was born. I watched the whole thing. Most of the time with my eyes and my mouth wide open with amazement. Here he comes. He's coming. Uh, Sir, would you like to come over here and cut the cord? Sure. (laughs) How do I do that? All sorts of unexpected and unforgettable things happening in that moment, most of which one should not speak of in front of a larger crowd, so I won't. But at one point, they put two-hour-old Sam on a tray under a heat lamp. And I walked over, and I stood over him. And I just looked at him for a while. And I remember touching him. He was pink, and he was sort of fluttering his eyes. And I just stood there, amazed and astonished. I didn't understand it. I knew absolutely nothing about being a father. I didn't have answers. I didn't need answers. Something had just happened. And it warranted astonishment. Now, you might disagree with with what I'm about to say, which... Certainly wouldn't be the first time. And you ultimately might be right, and I ultimately might be wrong. But I think we have an innate longing for astonishment. The desire to be astonished is built right into us. We want to be in the presence of something every now and then we can't explain and we can't define, even though it can be scary and intimidating to be in the presence of something We can't explain and we can't define. But to be fully human, I think we need to regularly be astonished. Our eyes need to open wider. Our mouths need to hang open and not say anything. We need contact with something that is bigger. 
that is grander and beyond our capacities and sensibilities. Nature astonishes. Images that come back to us from space via telescopes astonish. New life, babies, astonish. Beauty astonishes. Love astonishes. I recently read an article about the decline of religion in America. Religion doesn't, apparently, in America, astonish. For the first time ever, more people are unaffiliated with a religious institution than they are affiliated. In our nation today, less people believe in God than ever before, and interest and involvement in church or a mosque or a synagogue is dropping like a rock. Science and rational thought and secular humanism are well on their way to replacing these fairy tales about a Jewish guy rising from the dead. It's happening in our nation right in front of our eyes, and the numbers are falling seemingly every month. And maybe one reason religion in America is on the decline is because in our efforts to try and answer all the questions and solve all the mysteries and resolve all the complexities, maybe we have stripped off all the astonishment. So faith has been reduced to a formula, the Bible to a rule book, church to a corporation, Christians to rather angry elves. God has been tamed and trained into a house pet. Life is merely a layover on our way to heaven. And the marriage between Christianity and partisan politics has proven to be a match made in hell. So I kind of understand the decline. It sort of makes sense. But whatever decline is happening in American religion, people still want to sit by the ocean. Not to ponder the science of waves or understand the ocean's ecosystem. We go there to be in awe. We go there to be astonished. We go to the ocean to snap out of our everyday life hypnosis. We go there to encounter something bigger than us and beyond us. And here's the thing. If the resurrection happened, and remember, we're proceeding today as if it did, or even if we think the resurrection might have happened, then we simply must pause for at least a moment or two because something so extraordinary warrants more than a respectful wave or a tip of the cap. Mike meets Sam. Two hours ago, he crawled out from inside of Julie. Well, that's cool. Now, where are we going for brunch? This doesn't make sense. I mean, if the resurrection happened, it warrants a reaction. Some kind of response. Astonishment, perhaps. But astonishment may be too far away for us. That's okay. But some sort of movement, some kind of response, curiosity, perhaps, to find out more. Just one step closer, a conversation, something. And here's the thing. Just like when I stood over two-hour-old Sam laying in the warming tray, all the questions won't be answered right away or maybe ever. 
Well, if God is so good, why is there suffering? You know, before we get to this resurrection thing, why does cancer win so often? Why are Christians so angry? How do I know if any of this is true? All good questions. But if Jesus rose from the grave and is alive right now, the questions, however good, can wait just a bit. And maybe it's time to just sit for a second and be astonished. And maybe it's time to take one step closer to find out what is this all about. Last way that the resurrection can spark newness and difference and a better way of living is through what we'll call renewal. Here's what I mean. Old things being made new. Dead things coming back to life. These are the prevailing themes of the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus was not an isolated, one-time, or one-off event to prove Jesus was who he claimed. It is that. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it was also the beginning of a whole new world where God's power now raises dead things and renews and transforms old things. His resurrection, then, was the first of many. Think of it this way. Jesus was crucified by the Roman Empire, the bully of the first century world, the greatest power on the planet, put Jesus to death. So, get this. The great powers of Rome and sin and evil and the ultimate and undefeated power of death, four rather imposing opponents all collaborated to conquer Jesus. Just like these powers had collaborated many times before to conquer many before. So when Sunday came and Jesus rose from the grave, don't miss this. It was a profound announcement that Rome and sin and evil and death were no longer the greatest powers. When Jesus rose, the world system was literally shaken and reframed and reoriented around a new king whose name was Jesus and his project to renew and transform dead and old things and dead and old ways was now underway. See, death was never part of God's original plan. And the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the end of death. And it was the beginning and the and the end beginning of the end of the minion, minions of death. So everywhere in this world where there is the scent of death, everywhere within a human heart where is there is the scent of death or the marks of evil or the signs of sin or corrupted power or violence or poverty or racism, or injustice of whatever kind, or greed, or hatred, or sexual brokenness, or relational pain, right there, the resurrected Jesus wants to bring hope and renewal and life and goodness. The and Peter is now and Mike, and you, and whatever is not currently under the leadership of King Jesus marked by sin, 
evil, or death. So the resurrection do not fall into this. The resurrection does not point to a future magical kingdom up in the clouds called heaven that one day we travel to for an eternal vacation. The resurrection points to renewed and renovated people like you and me living in a renewed and renovated world governed by a very good king. Because as Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this gets right down into right now. Life in the messiness. And how then we should live and work and relate. Scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, and this is on the screen if you want to follow. For his first followers, when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning, it was the beginning of a whole new world, a world of healing and hope. This new world, visible and changed lives and a radically new community, bypassed the politicians and power brokers, much to their annoyance, and began to make waves. The movement spread rapidly, like the pandemic, but with the opposite effect. People were healed, both physically and socially. The reason people joined the movement, despite official disapproval, was that the lifestyle of Jesus' followers was hugely attractive. They looked after each other and anyone else within reach, and they did away with the normal cultural and social barriers. One of the earliest writings to a Emerge from the new movement, put it bluntly, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, because you are all one, then the crunch, in Messiah Jesus. See, the resurrection means that right now, today, in this moment, and for every other moment we have, we are living in a new world. And everyone who is aligned with Jesus has a new job in this new world. We are living in a new world, and if you are aligned with Jesus, then you have a new job in this new world. And that job is to proclaim the good news of God's power over sin and death and evil and Rome and all of the very expressions, various expressions of sin and death and evil and Rome. Our job is to bring the fragrance of the kingdom wherever there is the scent of sin or death or Rome or despair. So I want to invite those who are going to be leading us at the end here to come forward at this time. And I want to just camp here for a second because I'm not sure that this is where we typically think, uh, what we typically think of when we think resurrection. I think sometimes we think in terms of, oh, he came out of the grave and then something else happened and someday we're all going to go to heaven when we die. And all that has its place. But the resurrection means life right now can be new and better and different. The resurrection means hope makes sense today because the most powerful one is now in charge. See, where the gospel of Mark ends is where our adventure begins. Filled now with hope. Filled with joy. Confused, yes. Baffled, yes. Bewildered, yes. With all the answers, no. All the complexities resolved, 
No. All the tensions relieved? No. But filled with hope. Filled with joy. Proclaiming the good news. A new world has begun. Jesus is king. He's making dead things come back to life. He's making old things new. Some of you have first-hand experience with dead things coming back to life and old things being made new. Jesus is making the world right and we get to join him in this wonderful work. And one day he's going to finish this work and then everybody will say, all is well. Goodness will prevail. Shalom will permeate. Joy will be in the air. Death will be dead. Sin will be gone. Evil will be crushed. And all manner of things will be well. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you realize that one day that prayer Jesus taught us to pray will be fully and finally answered. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And a giant step forward to the fulfillment and answer of that prayer took place when Jesus walked out of his grave. And on that day when he finishes his work, the risen Jesus will then have the kingdom. And he will have the power. And he will have the glory, all of which belongs to him because he knows what to do with it. And he will have it forever and ever and ever. And we get to be part of this and experience this right now, today. Would you pray with me, please? Our Lord Jesus Christ, wonders beyond description. Truths we can't handle. Power beyond our ability to comprehend. Hope. And more hope. And more hope. Beyond our ability to process. Joy unspeakable. Life instead of death. Righteousness instead of sin. Hope instead of despair. All because you are the king who rose from the grave. So today we celebrate you. We acknowledge you. We exalt you. We proclaim you to be the king over everything. The king who is greater than everything. The king whose power is unmatched. And we worship and we celebrate you for all that you have done. We pray this in your name.